Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to Carl Phillips, co-founder of the Mosley Folk and Mosley Jazz Funk and Soul Festivals. Inspired by his love of Duran Duran and hanging out in Rocker's record shop, Carl talks about recording the huge Acid House club classic, Jesus Loves the Acid, its unintended consequences, and meeting his musical hero, Neil Young. Well, hello and welcome to a man whose musical journey is nothing if not eclectic. It spans Blondie, Duran Duran, Neil Young, the rave scene, and folk music. Like many of us, he discovered music through Birmingham's magic bus, the number 50. And like many of us who love music as fans, he has turned that love of music into a living. And in so doing, he's made a huge contribution to the lives of tens of thousands of people in Birmingham, the wider West Midlands and beyond. Please welcome one of the founders of Mosley Folk and Arts Festival, Mosley Jazz Funk and Soul Festival, and the Lunar Festival. Carl Phillips. Thank you. Now, Carl, I'm going to get a bit of your life story, and I want to hear about your musical influences, but I want to plunge straight in at 2005, because you almost gave up the promoting game, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I think I was sitting on a very cold, windy alleyway at the Custard Factory with my wife at 4 o'clock in the morning, when there wasn't very many people in the club, we'd probably just lost a £1,000. And, yeah, I think my wife was going, what, what, what the hell are we doing here? You know, it was a bad night in the winter at the Custard Factory. I was probably promoting someone that, I don't know, wasn't very big at the time. So, yeah, it was just... Got a bit disillusioned with what I was doing there and uh, that was probably a, a slight low point. But then through just one of those crazy ideas and I can remember having it in my kitchen... Someone had had some misfortune. He used to, a guy called uh, Dave Alexander was doing a gypsy jazz festival in Mosley Park and I'd been supplying some of the marquees for that event and we found out that that was, had lost its funding and that was not going to be anymore. And I think all these things culminated in an idea and I'd been listening to a bit of folk music at the time and something should, you know, I was thinking, oh, what a shame that there's not going to be an event next year in, in Mosley Park, because his event was great, uh, La Suprema Nouche, it was called. And uh, it was just one of these moments where I'm glad I did have uh, that, that thought of, what could it be replaced with? A folk festival, because I've been, uh, you know, got a bit disillusioned with dance music at the time. And, yeah, that's where the idea came from. And, you know, there's this kind of theme going on where I think in Birmingham as well, there's, there's so many people that have said yes um, to me and it's all about the people really Birmingham and come up with an idea and if you have a good idea and it's like you mention it to someone they say yes we'll help we can do that we've got some of that over here and it just kind of snowballed into what now is um, in the, the kind of later part of my life is a great living and I ended up actually for the first time ever making a living out of music you know which put a lot of uh, love into music and music gave me a lot of love but that was the moment it turned around into a career I, I could stop doing 
silly decorating jobs or digging holes in roads and um you know ended up working in in the music industry and getting paid well for it oh brilliant that's good to hear and it's (laughs) good to hear the positivity about birmingham as well and all the people saying yes to you let's go back then to beginnings so you grew up i think initially in bartley green your dad moved you over to withall when you were four yeah my family like my uh grandfather um when my mum and dad were young they lived in the pineapple estate in king's Heath, so i've got my roots in king's Heath, the highbury pub apparently my granddad was a bit of a nightmare in the highbury he, he used to like uh getting a bit drunk and trying to have a pop at people so he was well known bill foster and um the first thing i remember is probably a few memories of being in a, in a row called ambleside in bartley green yeah till i was four i think i did my first year of school there and then my auntie lived in Bow Desert Road in, in Withall or Hollywood on the border of those two places. And I think my dad saw a different life to Bartley Green. This is a nicer place. And, you know, I've got to thank him for one of them pivotable moments. I'm not saying, you know, it wouldn't have been a great life to grow up in Bartley Green, but I, I often wonder if I'd have been in Bartley Green, uh, what I would be doing now. I don't think I'd be doing this. Well, it's interesting because I grew up around that side of Birmingham as well, yeah. around by Lay Hill, and we moved to Drewitt Heath, not that far from where you were. But the key ingredient, I think, was the number 50 bus because that took me into Kings Heath and Moseley and the world of gigs and onto Her Street and the Rockers record shop, as it then was, yeah. which you're wearing the T-shirt yeah, of I'm now. wearing the T-shirt, yeah. The 50 bus was a weird one because... It was a bit of a problem for people that lived in Withall because it only stopped at the Maypole, so you did, <laughs> you, you did have to walk about a mile and a half, but I suppose that kept you fit when you were young going up there. But yeah, um, one thing that, that happened that brought me to Rockers was my mum. My mum and dad used to work at Cadbury's, but my mum left Cadbury's when uh, we were young and she got a job at Shora School, uh, which was next to the Woodrush School where I went to both of these schools. And she worked with a lady called Jean Taylor, and they were good friends. And I think one day at school, some bully jumped on my back, I fell over, and I broke my arm. And she'd heard that, oh, Carl's broke his arm. So as a gift, I got sent home. This was in about 1981. Got sent home this big parcel, you know, and this was probably, thinking of the timeline, it was probably pre-release, but it was Planet Earth single signed by all the members of the band. Of Duran Duran. Of Duran Duran, yeah. Some kind of Christmas card that was like a Duran Duran Christmas card. I've still got these things. Wow. And um, I, I was obviously into music at the time. I'd been bought some, like, disco decks for, you know. So, obviously, um, I, I was dyslexic. I wasn't very good academically at school, but I was into more art and music. So that's where I was thriving. Obviously, I was getting into you know, different bands, you know, I can remember thinking Adam and the Ants were great and stuff like that. I think they were slightly pre-Duran. But then this record coming home and playing this single and the fact that it was um, my mum's workmate's son that was in this band and I could see them and I was just like, wow, this is brilliant. And then pretty simultaneously, they started to appear on the TV and then it just went from there. So every record that they released... It got brought home to me, signed, and then uh, I obviously started becoming a massive Duran Duran fan. Jean Taylor, we ought to point out then, was the mum of John Taylor. Yeah, there was Jean and Jack Taylor. Yeah, Jack was the dad. And they were quite... um, They were very uh, well-to-do people. They lived in a much bigger house than we did. Uh, It's not big now, but when you look at it. But she was a lovely woman. So when I got into Duran Duran, I'd 
simultaneously as they were getting obviously going global this band and talking about the 50 bus what would happen on the weekend is just then streams and streams of people would start walking from the maypole to go and try and find where john taylor or nick rhodes lived nick lived in a little cul-de-sac didn't really know nick or anybody to do with nick but then when this all happened nick's mother or it was Nick's auntie, I think it might have, had a, a shop at the Maypole called Bates's Toy Corner. So they had a toy shop in the, this uh, real concrete precinct at the Maypole. So then I started going in there as well. So this was the start of my teens of maybe starting with my friends to get the 50 into town, walking around town, go to Oasis, buy some badges from the badge shop, buy some posters, and then go into Oasis, get some pointy shoes and, and that kind of thing and it was there wasn't anything else to do that was the height of the entertainment of like Saturday going into and then hanging around with your mates but then I suppose the new romantic thing happened as well and we all become new romantics it was obvious and we were all Duran Duran fans so the group of kids I was hanging around with we were like I suppose in our year the cool kids but then also that happened is the the school had this like kind of vibe about it because it was Duran Duran's school you know John went to because he was a Catholic he went to Lady by the Wayside but uh, Nick Rhodes had the same art teacher and then form teacher as Dave and Nick so this was uh, Woodrush yeah school. Woodrush yeah Mr Brown and sorry before then though and obviously that was a pivotal moment you know you've been beaten up by a bully and John Taylor's mom sends you these amazing gifts as a kind of get well soon present, and that turns you into a massive Duran Duran fan. But you'd already got Dex, and as I understand it, you're already into Blondie and Kraftwerk. So you'd got your music influences from somewhere. Where, where did that come from? I don't know. I just think, as I said... Did you have brothers and sisters? I had a younger sister, but it wasn't to do that. I obviously just, you know, loved Top of the Pops and stuff like that. I can remember... We all had rucksacks at the time, like these Hessian rucksacks, and everybody would write bands on their on their bags that you, you was obviously... And it was like a part of a club or... You know, this doesn't go on. I was listening to someone the other day now. There was like mods, weren't there, and rockers. And this didn't happen outside England, apparently, so of, of small groups. But, but I remember like ABC coming on, the, on top of the pops. And I think before the song had finished, I'd run and got my bag and the pen and I wrote ABC on it. So it was a, <laughs> it was a bit like immediate, like, I want to be a part of these guys. These are new romantics, I can see, you know. This is my tribe, you know, so... So that would have been 81. So how old were you then? 14, 15? I was, no, I was... I was uh, so 81, I was 12, I think. Okay. As I said, I want to say now that a lot of these narratives are probably lies. I can't remember the names or <laughs> com- com- completely wrong years. You know, I'll be talking about, you know, something, <laughs> something completely wrong. But going back to Jean, yeah, she was really good. She'd, there'd be groups of, of people, like 30 or 40 girls on a Saturday all standing outside John Tyler's mum's house or Nick's mum's house or at the end of the cul-de-sac. And it'd be like uh, waiting just in case the door had opened. Yeah. You know what I mean? I suppose it, it, these days it'd be like, you know, kind of, um, you know, your photographer's waiting for something to go on. But, the, it, it, you know, it was a little bit like Beatles, I suppose, wasn't it? You know, but on a smaller scale. But yeah, I can just remember some instance where, you know, and she was really nice to me, Jane was, that I'd walk through all these girls it was really cool. Ring the doorbell, and she'd open the door and go, oh, do you want a cup of tea? Come in, like, and, and, and sit, sit in the front. And she'd make me a cup of tea in the kitchen. And there was the, the odd occasion, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know him well. Obviously, Dave, um, who's here, was his school friend, so I grew up with him and was in bands with him. But there was the odd occasion where 
um, you know, he'd be there and stuff, and he'd sit and talk to you and sign the records in the front room and that, and it was like you'd walk out with signed albums, and these girls would be like, ah! You know, they'd be trying to grab you, and, and I think it might have gone in, and, hang on a minute, this is quite good, this is. This is, this, this is like, uh, this is the music industry, this is what's cool about it. I remember one time I went round, and he'd... Uh, and I always remember this. I think he'd had something, a problem with his arm and he'd, he'd had an operation on his arm. But he was in the most uncool clothes ever. And I think it... You know when you go home and you wear your, your, your crap tracksuit trousers and, and your stuff? And he'd got flares on, uh, an Aaron jumper and glasses. And I'd never seen him in glasses before. So he was like this... I thought, oh, hang on a minute. That, he don't look like John Tyler. And he looked really young then. I can remember that picture of him looking like a, a college kid or something you know but but she was really nice and then I got to know obviously uh, Nick's mum and dad and Nick's auntie because of Bates' toy corner and met them on numerous occasions so it was really cool you know and went to the gigs and stuff one one gig I remember actually my mum took me to see the I think it was the second show at the Odeon and we got in really early, and my mum obviously hadn't kept up with the news, but there was the Birmingham riots the same night, and we got into New Street, and I think she wanted to do a bit of shopping first, and we went into, um, which was just around the corner from the Odeon, and we went into Marks and Spencer's, and the next minute, all these police just shouted, lock the doors, lock the doors, and a load of guys just run down, bricking the windows. So I saw a riot then as well, and, and what was sad about that is the police told my mum, take your children home now. So we didn't go to the concert, so I missed that first uh, show of, uh, that I was supposed to see, Duran Duran. 81, sorry. 81. I told you, it'll all be wrong. <laughs> and the memory's going. You mentioned the art teacher, and again, chatting before we came on here now, you said you weren't great at school. Yeah. So how ungreat were you? Uh, really bad, yeah. yeah so I've never been diagnosed, but I'm obviously totally dyslexic, and... I read lots of books now, but I find it you know easier to listen to audio books. But yeah, it's just one of them things that I've lived with. But it's never held me back at all. You know, I've I've done really well. I've, I feel for myself. You know, through music and people have got different skills, haven't they? I mean, I'm not a musician either. I've been in lots of different bands, but I tried to be a front man in a few bands, and maybe I can play the drums to to do a beat, but. I probably saw myself as just an enthusiastic person that would jump along with someone else. And that's, that's the other thing about people. You know, I think in anything I've ever done, it's been the people, you know, around me, the facilitators, people saying yes, you know, and all that. So, so when you left school then, you obviously you'd got a taste for the rock and roll lifestyle, but you weren't a qualified musician in any way. No, you weren't in a you no. know, popular band. And What did you do? Well, a bit, a bit earlier than that, so around... 82. When I was about 14, me and my mate Anthony Darby, who I've spent all my life with, he's been in bands with Dave, and uh, he's a great musician, you know what I mean? So that's why I've, I've don't go very far away from me. You can play a musical instrument, I'll just stand by you and look, <laughs> you know, you, you do the music. So around that time, uh, we decided through having some of these things that have been given to me to look at the address of the Duran Duran fan club which was, I think it was 72 Hearst Street. So we looked up this address and said, one day I said to Anthony, my friend, right, we're going into town, 14-year-olds, maybe 15, let's go and find this address. So obviously he didn't have sat-nav then. We worked out where Hearst Street was in an A to Z, maybe, and walked in to what I now know, now know is Rockers Records, which I'm sporting the T-shirt, 
And I think I just remember that day. That was another massive pivotal moment. I walked in there, and it was all painted black. There was just, like, punk posters all over the wall of every crazy band. And it was probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And the music was so loud in there. But it was a thing called the Rama Lama monkey chant, which was, like, these Tibetan monks chanting. And it was the most intense thing I've ever heard. It kind of scared me when I walked in, but the volume was so loud. And I think there was all these guys standing, you know, long-haired guys standing behind the counter, all laughing, and, and they were obviously getting off on this, this crazy music. And I just, I think I went to the counter, and there was a guy standing there smoking a cigarette with long hair, looking like a, a hippie. I said, excuse me, you know, what is this? What is this music? Oh, this is the Ramalama monkey chant. Now I realise that this chap was Mike Caddick, he's called, and he, he was one of the two guys that run Rockers. And, um, which later became Swordfish Records, it's, which it's, still survives in Yeah, the again. Swordfish, the label, and then Swordfish, the record shop, which still survives today. Sadly, Gaz, who I became very friendly with, he's no longer with us, he passed away earlier this year, which was a sad thing. So I think I asked him, I said can I get this on record, this, this thing? And he was like, no, you can't get it on record. I think he was playing a cassette, but I'll do you a cassette of it. So I went across to a hi-fi shop over the road, bought a cassette, gave him the cassette and said, can you do a copy of this, this thing for me? Because it's just like the most crazy thing I've ever heard. So then because he got such a bad memory, this guy, I didn't realise what was going to go on then. I think every Saturday then, for about three months, we went back to try and retrieve this tape that he said he was going to make for me. And he probably did it on purpose, just because he wanted us to come back. So we'd go in and go, have you got the tape? No. But then we'd spend time in there and then start listening to this record, The Stooges, or listening to The Velvet Underground. And in the end, it just became a thing to do, rather than... I don't even think I bought any records from there for a long time. I probably couldn't afford to buy any records... And just got to meet the people in there. There's just loads of crazy characters. You know, there'd be Dave Twist sitting on the stairs. There was like a funny little um, set of stairs by the counter that went upstairs. Dave would be sitting there looking like cool rock and roll. And then there was this other chap, Gaz, who was a, a mild-mannered chap. And you'd just end up talking about music and, you know... And I think that's where... I'm saying I wasn't very good academically. That's where I gained my education, in that shop. And I don't think I left that shop then for probably the next 15 years. I just went in there every single day, every moment, and became really good friends with the people that owned it. My mother and father had split up. My mum, lovely lady, my mum. But I then, because I didn't have many family ties, I just decided to... I kind of went feral a little bit, but I ended up in a, in a really, really good family of this shop. You know, I ended up getting to know Gaz really well, sleeping on Gaz's sofa for the next few years. He was like my older brother. We'd go to gigs. That was another great thing. Obviously, all the local bands would advertise there, and they'd all be in there as well, all the local bands in Birmingham. Scarecrows, Surf Drums, a band called Zodiac Motel. They were all hanging out in this shop. There was nothing else to do. Listen to music, buy music, talk to Mike Caddick, talk to Dave, talk to Gaz, get to know them, and then we started going to gigs with them. And that was our social life then, and we, we just, you know, I, I kind of grew up in this shop for the next 10 or 15 years. It was a, an amazing education. But your formal education wasn't a success. What did you do to earn a living and pay for the records and pay for the gigs? Uh, the f- funny thing, that 
probably just I was about to leave school. This was a bit of a I thought this was a I landed on my feet here is you were allowed to do two weeks work experience. Guess where I asked to do it? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just ended up, you know, I was the tea boy in there, you know. But I couldn't believe that I was allowed two weeks off school to sit in rockers. You know what I mean? Make the tea and listen to, you know, Iggy Pop or something like that, you know. How did that morph into a, a career in promotion? So then, then I started, I was a tarmacker to start off with. I had a friend. Late, laying tarmac on the roads. Yeah, laying yeah. tarmac on the roads, digging. It was a lot, lot of trenches that where they'd put in cables and stuff, and it was. Um, redoing the trenches, the, the tarmacking. I had a friend at school that started a tarmacking company. I also went to hairdressing college, so I've been a, this was at more or less the same time, uh, and this is where timelines blur, and I can't remember which one came first, but I think I was a hairdresser first, and I, and I worked in a, a hairdressers in Kings Heath and in Colmore Row, and went to hairdressing college. But I got dermatitis. It was, you know, uh, like from having your hands wet all the time and in chemicals, still got, like, scarred hands from it, and I had to give that up. So then I carried on tarmacking. So I was tarmacking and hairdressing at the time, around this time. And then through being in Rockers, I think this is like 88 now, this is my first promotion where Mike and Gaz, we'd seen this, the front pages of the tabloids, start talking about this crazy craze in London, uh, Acid House music. And um, it was all over the front of like the sun and, you know, all these raves. I mean, it wasn't just in, in music press. And I think Gaz and Mike were just like... They, they were really interested in what this was. So I think they sent me on a fact-finding mission. They sent me to go to all the other record shops in Birmingham and see if you can find some acid house and bring it back. <laughs> so I remember going to HMV and another record shop. There was one with a basement. I can't remember. It was called Inferno. And there was an actual acid house section, and I think it had four records in it. So I bought them four records, and then I think they gave me the money as well. They sent me off to... I think they might have wanted to stock Acid House. So I went and bought all the Acid House I could find in Birmingham and then went back to the shop and uh, then started to play it. And I think we were all, like, scratching our heads, going, what is this? You know, I mean, now putting it in a timeline of music, you know, you can understand things like I Feel Love by Donna Summer or something was similar music, but this was so minimal that it was just really, really unusual music to listen to. And I think I was just like, this is crap. You know what I mean? There's no songs in this. It just keeps going on and on and on. But I suppose unless you're in a club, the experience of Acid House, yeah. So then they suggested that I did a club. So this was my first ever uh, club now. This is in 88. Uh, So I think I just went and knocked on the, the powerhouse door which was the nearest club i didn't go very far you know just at the top of us it was about about 100 yards down the road from rockers bang 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 and this is the the yes thing and this really tall bloke a guy called nigel blunt uh who's a bit of a a figure in birmingham or was at the time and he was the manager of the powerhouse we'd started going to clubs obviously there was other things that happened there there was a another guy called mac who run this uh, club called the sensoria that was a really really cool club we used to go to and then there was another club there. I'd started listening to funk and stuff like that at the time called Salvation. And it was this top room upstairs above um, the powerhouse. And um, these two nights were on. And uh, Nigel Blunt said, yeah, you can do it on a, on a Friday night. Or I think it might be on a Thursday night. And because all the acid house stuff was happening around the country and there was a, a bit like me going to try and find what acid house was, I think there was a lot of people that wanted to know what acid house was or what an acid house club was. So we booked this night. I did 
it wasn't just acid house. I was playing or I was listening to a lot of things like Fred Wesley, James Brown, the JBs and that kind of funk at the time as well. I'd started to listen to that and thought that was a really good thing. And going to Salvation, so it's obviously dance floor stuff. And then, you know, with all the help from the people in Rockers, again, Dave Twist, he made me a poster. And this is probably the start of my enthusiasm of making something work. I think I just went round Birmingham City Centre then and plastered these posters around Birmingham City Centre. I don't know who came up with it. It was probably Gaz or Mike or Dave. We called it the Ecstasy Club because it was pretty obvious then what it was. Uh, They were going on about ecstasy as a drug at the time and plastered the whole of Birmingham and then put this night on. And I think I can remember coming downstairs at half past seven, eight o'clock, just before the doors opened, and the queue was just round the corner. So... You know, it was just one of them silly, silly moments, really. Birmingham's and first proper rave. It night. was. It was actually Birmingham's first acid house rave. <laughs> yeah. So there was another one a couple of nights after, which I will put down and say Lee Fisher. He'd probably been listening to that kind of Detroit techno for a while, so he probably understand. He understood the progression into it because he was a, a DJ in dance music at the time. But yeah, so by nine o'clock, nine thirty, they shut the doors, turning loads of people away, and it was just like. It was chaos. I just got. I ordered loads of strobes because this is what I heard went on. Filled the place with smoke so you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face, and then just played all these acid house records. So you were but, DJing as well. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, <laughs> DJ and, and MCing and promoting. Uh, yeah, and promoting. <laughs> Me and my mate Beamish DJed all night playing rare groove and acid house, and it was just like. It was a storm, yeah. So uh, that that was. And it my was first... a storm. It was a storm that was followed by a storm. Yeah. Tell us what happened next. So, yeah, the, ne- the next night, I think I was... I thought, right, I'm going to go to Salvation because now I'm a cool promoter at this club. So I thought, I used to go to Salvation anyway. It was great music. And that's, as I said, that, that funk stuff was what I was into at the time. And I can remember dancing on the dance floor, enjoying myself. Yeah, I'm Carl, the Ecstasy Club, and, you know, <laughs> I'm a promoter too and all this. And I think I had a tap on the shoulder and uh, someone said... And this was about, like, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning now, just before it was finishing. And someone said... Um, you need to go downstairs. Nigel Blunt wants a word with you in the office. So I can remember walking into the office and uh, Nigel and I can't remember the name of the other manager sitting at the other side of the desk just like staring blankly at me. And in front of them, there was um, the, the newspaper. This is Saturday night now. This is the newspaper from the next day. The I, su- I, Sunday Mercury. Sunday, I didn't realise you could buy the newspaper the day before, but... Mecca, who owned the, the powerhouse, had phoned him up and said, you better get down to Bloody New Street Station and go and buy this newspaper. And on the front cover of this newspaper, it said, Sex and Drugs Dance Craze. There was a picture of Derek Jameson in the corner, small. We were above that. I don't know what he was doing, getting married or something. But um, Sex and Drugs Dance Craze at the powerhouse. DJ Carlboy run, run amongst the dancers, chanting acid, acid. Uh, this you know, is you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was DJ Carlboy, yeah. And uh, young teenage girls were carried down the stairs, inebriated, and I can't remember the, um, the name of the guy who wrote the article, but a lot of people didn't like him. But there was some kind of conservative MP saying, these people should be stamped on from a great height, it's disgusting, you know, they should be you know, arrested for putting these acid house parties on. And it was just... And I was standing there just going... And I think, I think Nigel just went, I'm afraid, you know, this is the end of it, Carl, you know what I mean? This is the, my first night was the end of it. And uh, it transpired the next day that 
Mecca, who owned the powerhouse, just said, right, that's it, that room, close it. So the Salvation and the Sensitaria lost their room. So in other words, I think my cultural, uh, you know, gift to Birmingham was to wreck something that was a really good club scene, you know what I mean? There was a really vibrant, cool club scene that probably would have gone on. I got there nights, just sacked straight away, uh, you know, and they, they, they closed the club room. Well done. That was the ecstasy club, yeah. <laughs> and that so, was classic moral panic stuff, I suppose. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Like the filth and the fury when punk came round. Oh, yeah. But you picked up the threads, though. You got the taste for it then, hadn't you, for promoting? Yeah, yeah so that nights. was the start of my promoting. I think what happened next was pretty cool, was... I'd gone back to the shop the next day or the next week and, and gone, you know, look at this. No one could believe that we was on the front cover of the Sunday Mercury. It was like being, I suppose for Brum, it was like being on the front cover of the Sun or something. And then uh, Mike Caddick just said, I think we should make a record. He was straight on it because, obviously, simultaneously at the time, rockers were running a record label. This was another really cool thing about hanging around in rockers. Uh, on the label, there was the Scarecrows, Dave's band. I used to go to all their gigs and hang around with them. This was a really good thing for me, I think, at the time. All my friends, or I, I used to still hang around with my, my schoolmates, but we used to hang around with all the people in Rockers, like Dave and his, his friends and the surf drums and go to all the... And they were like 10 years older than me. But they were all really nice people, welcoming, you know, very friendly, supportive... And they were like my, fa- my older family. They were like older brothers and sisters to me. So, the, yeah, some of the bands on that label, I mean, it's, it's a great label. He's put some, Mike's put some great stuff out with Gaz. There's obviously the Filipinos that Dave was in with my friend Anthony Darby, who I mentioned earlier. Godflesh, another seminal Birmingham band. The Surf Drums. Zodiac Motel that went on to be Birdland. Uh, I was their roadie as well at the same time, so... I was definitely juggling lots of different hats. That, they, they started getting a bit famous just after that. But you put a record out then through Rockers. Yeah, so, yeah so this is it. Yeah, um, Mike said, I remember him saying, this is either the, the, the best thing we've ever done or the most stupidest thing we've ever done. And then there was another band on the record label called Django 3, I think they were called, who'd put a couple of dance records out, really good, one called Apollo Love 99 or something it was called. And two members of that band, I think Mike just went, a guy called Simon Colley and I think Paul Adams, they were in a band called Somerville at the time, another uh, really good Birmingham band, said, go off with these guys. And he was, so it was a bit like a Pete Waterman or something, Mike Caddick, without, without knowing, but in Acid House. Those two guys had been in the original Duran Duran, I think, with Stephen Duffy. Yeah, well. it was Simon Colley in Duran, was he? They yeah, were, yeah. yeah and, so and with Matthew Edwards in Somerville. Oh, yeah, well, uh, Ted, Ted's, yeah, yeah. Or Ted or Matthew, yeah. So, yeah, there we are. Yeah. I've, I've recorded with some of Duran Duran. <laughs> Sorry, they were put in a studio then? Yeah, right? well, yeah. another chap that was on the label at the time as well was The Lilac Time, which was Stephen Duffy. And I think The Lilac Time was the biggest selling record at the time on Swordfish, I think, and then it had been picked up by a major. So they put me into a studio, and it, th- this thing only lasted, like, two days, where I went into the studio. There wasn't even computers at the time. I remember there was a 101, a Roland 101 synthesizer, a sequencer, and an 808 drum machine. There was no computer involved, and... They were like, what do you want to do? Uh, they'd obviously been making kind of dancey music, but Acid House was new to them. I said, well, it's just got to be as simple as it can be. Three notes. And he went, well, play three notes then. So I went, do, do, do. And he pressed record and then sequenced that. And then they put some drum beats to it. I'm not going to pretend I wrote the hook line to it. And then Simon Colley 
applied what was the, the main hook line to the track. I think then the next day they booked um, Andy Welsh, who was the guy that owned the studio at the time. I think they've been recording some of the bands at this, this studio in the centre of Birmingham where the Dome used to be. They put me in there, but I think that's what made that record when it actually came out sound amazing. I think most people with synthesizers and drum machines and stuff plugged into some kind of reel-to-reel at home, but then I took this equipment with their help into a really big, probably 64-channel recording studio with loads of outboard EQs and reverbs and echoes and the guy sat there and we just twiddled with it let it run through a few times so that was two days I think it was an afternoon sequencing it and um, you know an afternoon recording it and then Mike put it out Swordfish what was it released as then it was called The Ecstasy Club and Jesus Loves the Acid which is (laughs) it's it's a strange name but it was probably someone like Dave who came up with it or something because there was a record out at the time called Jesus Loves the Stooges it was a bootleg and I was a massive Stooges fan so I think it just got suggested and to make it really obvious what this record was uh, I'd obviously got the Svengali of Mike Caddick behind me let's call it the Ecstasy Club and Jesus loves the acid. So no one, you know, <laughs> no one could get confused what this bloody record was. And if you remember going back to me, trawling record shops, just looking for anything that said acid house on it or acid on it or ecstasy on it, and me buying every acid house record I could get hold of. When that got released and the, and the massive uplift of acid and everybody wanting to buy it across Europe, this is what more or less happened. And I remember they printed a 1,000 copies of them. And I think before Wednesday... The cartel were on the phone going, we've sold them. We need to print another thousand. We've sold them. We need to print another thousand. We've sold them. And I think it just... And were you on it or did you just produce it? No, no. So, yeah, I did some vocal on it that was twisted up in some effects, just chanting acid. And I actually controlled the keyboards while it was running through of tweaking the the knobs and, and making it go up and down an octave. So... I mean, there wasn't much to do. The computer was playing it, but, you know, I will say I didn't write the hook line for it, but I wrote the vocals. I think that's half of the, uh, <laughs> half of the uh, PRS. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. So, you, so you're career in promoting and very nicely ducking and diving around the music yeah. business continued. Yeah. Until that point then, that in yeah. 2005, where you'd had a good few years, but then you decided with your missus, maybe this isn't such a good idea after all. Yeah, um, I'd done a lot of clubs by then. I'd, I'd done the Q Club. Uh, we started doing clubs, getting involved in with a, other different groups of people. I can remember we did one of the first clubs at the Q Club, a big club called the Magic Shed that was good. Uh, I did a couple of drum and bass clubs. I did a, a night called Procreation there. And those nights were quite successful. But the promoting business was a very hit and miss thing. I put Lee Scratch Perry on once and made £4,000 and then put him on again 12 months later and lost £4,000. So we're kind of even with Lee Scratch Perry. <laughs> but it's, you never knew what... Uh, he obviously wasn't very good the first time and then no-one wanted to see him on the second time, you know. But just meeting these people was just a, a privilege, really. But, yeah, so I did a lot, a lot of clubs at, at the Q Club and then I went to the Custard Factory and did a lot of uh, clubs there. So this is while I was still working. Some years, me and my wife had gone really nice holidays because I'd had three hits, you know what I mean? And we'd made a couple of grand and stuff like that. But, um, but then, yeah, it, it wasn't a living. 
It wasn't a living. Uh, and was your missus always comfortable with the kind of the world that you were in and accepted those sort of ups and downs? Yeah, yeah. She enjoyed it. She enjoyed going out. We were young, got lots of friends, you know, hundreds of friends, but you couldn't remember any of their names, you know, because I've got a really bad memory. Most people I used to call man. Hi, man. Yeah, because I wouldn't remember that. You meet loads of people in clubs, don't you? And I still meet people today, and I'm like, I know you, but I just don't, you know. That was it, yeah, but she used to enjoy it. You know, she was hard-working and a teacher, but she was the breadwinner, really. So the up and down, as I said, six months was good, and then six months was really bad, you know, and it depended on how the gigs come. And then going towards the end of it, you know, I've skipped over a lot of um, clubs that I did and a big section of my club life there, but towards the end of it, I kind of got you know, a little bit disillusioned. There was a lot of other promoters then. It was the, the cool thing to do, put a nightclub on. So when I started, I think I was the first promoter at the Custard Factory as well. Uh, me, Adam Regan and Simon Jones that used to own the, the Custard Factory, we were the first people to put nights on there. So they were obviously very successful because it was a new venue in Birmingham. But then, by the end of it, there was probably 20 or 30 club promoters at the Custard Factory. So everybody was stepping on the toes for the DJs. And it was just really difficult to get, like, a kind of good night. So, yeah, the money probably dwindled down then and it wasn't as successful as it was at the start. But then you had this idea then. You'd started moving away from dance music a little bit, looking at folk music, and you saw an opening when, sadly, the Gypsy Jazz Festival... Yeah, because of going into Swordfish, as I said, I'd always been a big Stooges and Iggy fan. You know, we used to get Neil Young and Grateful Dead slammed down our throat in there. You might, I didn't, didn't like the Grateful Dead at the time, but it's one regret. They took me to loads of great shows as well. I mean, I, I went to see Miles Davis in Manchester when I was about 14 or 15 or something like that. You know, can't believe that I saw Miles Davis, you know. But the one regret, I'm a massive Grateful Dead fan now, and I, and I, I think I got invited to go and see Grateful Dead in Wembley, probably the last time they ever played in England, Wembley Stadium. And I went, I don't want to go and see them, they're crap, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's, that's one thing. Uh, but yeah, so I've always been listening to different types of music. While I was promoting dance music, I was a massive Neil Young fan as well. I'll yeah. come to Neil Young, but tell yeah. me about Mosley Folk then and how that, how that took off. Because yeah. that's been your breadwinner now for getting on for two decades. Yeah, I think it's 18 years now, mm. I can't remember. It, it seems crazy how long it's been, it just seems to have you know, gone. Yeah, it was just, at the time... Disillusioned with dance music. I've always listened to bands like Pentangle and the Incredible String Band. I was a bit of a hippie. Listened to a lot of American folk like Neil Young and Grateful Dead. But at the time then, I think there was like a bit of a... And we now know it was a folk revival, really. Um, A couple of artists like Seth Lankman, Tongue, other bands that, that were at the time. I didn't really know about that. I wanted to put Pentangle and the Incredible String Band and my heroes on. And again, Mike Caddick and Gaz in Swordfish uh, said, oh, you should speak to Jeff Dolman. He runs this record label called Static Caravan. He's connected, he knows all these new bands. There is actually a cool folk revival happening. And this was at the time when La Manouche had finished. I got uh, permission to do the folk festival in Mosley Park. And through a connection of a chap called Jerv, who was running a thing called Mission Print. He used to do all my rave flyers. I think I told three people that day when I'd got the permission to do the folk festival. Can't remember the other two, but obviously I didn't do it with them. I thought, I don't want to do it with you. But anyway, um, I happened to walk into Jerv's office, who printed my flyers, and I think I said to him, I've got permission to do a folk festival. And I think everybody had told that day, and again, going back to people being really enthusiastic about everything, he went, I'll do that with you. 
And I think out of the three people that I spoke to that day that said, I'll do that with you, I think I trusted Jerv more than anyone. So I said, Jerv, let's do this. And we just amazingly managed to book a Heroes, book Pentangle, book the Incredible String Band, which was their last ever gig. And then spoke to Jeff Dolman through Swordfish and booked people like Tongue and as well. We got told from Jeff Scott Matthews, he played the first folk festival and put it on and it was just a success straight away. I mean, I think the first year we did lose some money. Not very much, but, you know, everybody says things now like a three-year plan. But then the second year we made that money back and then it just went up and up and up and it's been a really good business since then. And it's, it stretches the definition of folk, doesn't it, sometimes? It, yeah, it definitely I call stretch. it a, a, tro- a Trojan <laughs> folk festival. We've got, really, you know, yeah. the, the water boys of Edline, although they obviously they're have folk. folkish tendencies. They're the, they're the folkiest band we've ever had, the water Johnny boys. Johnny Marr, uh, yeah, Kurt Johnny. Vile this year. Yeah, Kurt Vile, that would be pretty cool. We, you know, it's folk going into folk psychedelia, going into indie, you know, if you want to pigeonhole everything, but I'm sure they all play the acoustic guitar now and again. <laughs> And uh, that having been a success then, that then morphed into your other big festival, mostly jazz, funk and soul. Yeah. So I think it was obviously after two or three years of success with that, the park suggested, you know, and obviously they're getting feedback from seeing it in national papers, saying this is a really good event. You know, it has been really good for Mosley. That's one thing that I am proud of, that, you know, after I'm dead and gone, it's probably going to be carrying on, you know, and it's it has been something that's solidified a great event for Birmingham, you know. There's lots of other great events in Birmingham, but, you know, I'm proud of that I'm something to do with one of them. But they did say that, yeah, there could be another space or another opportunity to run another event. Obviously, you know, they're getting a bit of income from us, so that helped with the upkeep of the park and, you know, the maintenance and paying some of the bills. So, But I think they really like it as well. The people around the park are absolutely fantastic. You know, we've never had any negativity. I mean... I wouldn't want a concert in my back garden. And, and, you know, there's all them big posh houses, but that's one great thing about Mosley, isn't it? I think it's a really bohemian, open-minded place, and they love it. You know, they love being a part of it, you know. You talked about being proud of being part of one of Birmingham's great events, and from what I can tell, you've never left the city. So being Birmingham is at the core of your identity, it seems to me. Yeah. I do think about but I mean, I remember Mosley when I was quite young, and it was a really run-down place. You know, I can remember going through on the bus and 50% of the shops were boarded up. I don't know what year that was, but, you know, Birmingham has grown, but there's never been a city plan. I'm looking out on, on this. I do love the library, but, um, you know, but the old library, you know what I mean? What, what a travesty that that was knocked down. Thank God they saved the rotunda. But I don't think there's ever been a city plan, really, and... Uh, and it seems like, you know, this new Palisades has gone up and then this thing goes up and then it seems like people own different sections and there's no continuity to the city. But I think the continuity to the city are the people because that's what I've enjoyed in Birmingham is friends and just meeting loads of people. And I don't think anybody... I've never met a bad Brummie, really, you know what I mean? And listening to jazz as well, it's just the music you don't realise. I was listening to that thing that was on Radio 4 that I think jazz had something to do with and at the start of it, they just play all the famous tracks from Birmingham. You know, there's some massive tunes there, and, and there's so many. And I don't think Manchester or Liverpool or anywhere, or even London, has got as many cool records that have ever come from it. But I think Jez and a few people hit it on the, the nail on the head, is that there's no style to, to go, that's a Brummie record. 
like Manchester or Liverpool, the Beatles had a good idea and then everyone else copied them. Do you know what I mean? They all, you know, Oasis were just the Beatles, weren't they, really? All, all them kind of Manchester bands sounded Beatles-esque. But that's the one thing that's really unusual about Birmingham. I think the, the music is just so diverse. There's not one band that sounds like another band, really, you know, but I think that's what's great about the city, the music and the people. I want to talk finally about your hero, Neil Young, yeah. and how you came to meet him. This is a story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So... I've met him a couple of times, yeah, a bit of a stalker. So, uh, <laughs> so obviously... I d- you picked up tips from those teenage girls well, yeah, outside yeah. Well, John the, the thing is, I do get excited by famous people, you know what I mean? I met a few of them and I'm like... I mean, I've been in a restaurant with Michael Stipe and he was one of my heroes. And Rachel was just like... She, for the first 20 minutes, she was just like, I am not going to mention that Michael Stipe's sitting on the next table. Do you know what I mean? That, that's but your missus, is it? Yeah, yeah. Ra- Rachel, yeah. And, uh, and I managed not to speak to him that night, which is a, a shame. I always regret not going to say hello to Michael Stipe. So Neil Young, I'd been going over to his concert every year because I am a stalker and I'm a super fan of his. And um, I decided to go and find where the ranch was. This was the first time I met him. He didn't realise he was going to meet me that night. I decided to find out where the Broken Arrow Ranch was and it took me ages to work out coordinates and uh, this many miles north of the wherever it was and um, managed to find his front gate. It was, it's a beautiful place. You can see why he bought a place there. These like winding country roads and um, it just got to this five-bar gate and end of country road, private property, no further. And got out of the car and Rachel was like, what are you doing? Get back in the car. You're going to get into trouble here, Carl. And we're blocking this single track road and... Um, I'm standing there. I just want to take some pictures of, you know, Neil Young's gates, like Elvis, like the gates of Graceland or something like that to me. And I'm standing there, and then the next minute, like, comes through the trees down the drive is this massive white 60s uh, Lincoln convertible. And I know this now. I'm obviously a super fan. This is Neil Young's car coming towards me down the drive. And uh, as it got closer and closer, I realised that there's only one person in it, and it looks a bit like Neil Young. So, yeah, that was quite strange. And he, he pulled up to the gates and I was blocking, I was blocking <laughs> his exit. He probably thought, oh, here we, here we go. This is uh, the end for me. You know, he probably thought it was a John Lennon moment or something like that. And there's this crazy brummy waving his arms around going, Neil, Neil, like this, yeah. But it was really nice. He kind of wound his window down, shook my hand. Fast forward two years later, I decided to spend a little bit more harder money on investing in a little Pono player, um, this high-quality music player uh, that he invented and brought out. And you could buy into this company at certain levels. Because he was upset, wasn't he, about the compression yeah. into MP3 yeah, he, for he, streaming services. Yeah, he must be deaf anyway, listening to that music that loud. <laughs> but I'm deaf, I couldn't hear the difference. But it was a nice little player. It was like the iPod. It looked like a little Toblerone, but played flat files and these high-quality files that just sound nice. So I invested in this... Little bit of money, not not very much, but uh, as a part of the investment thing, thirty people could go out for dinner with him. So I flew to uh, America and had dinner with him. So that was pretty cool. He was very. He was Did you remember you? Did he say I saw oh, you at yeah, my gate? Like, Shit, man! It's you. Get him away from me. <laughs> no, no, but he was. He, yeah, he was cool. Because that first time, as I walked away, I took a picture, and I've never shared this picture with anyone because it does look like. Um, like an arcade fire album sleeve, and it's like this limo sitting in front of this five-bar gate at the end of a country road, but it's bloody Neil Young in the, in the car, you know, it's Neil Young's car. And I gave him a framed picture of this shot I took, and he was like, 
you know, that, that is a good picture of him pulling out of his drive. So, yeah. But it was quite weird. When we left, his car turned round, and I'm not saying I chased him, but we followed him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was a bit like the Batmobile, you know, at the start of Batman, when things like hedges dropped down and he went off a certain thing. He was, he was gone, because the car's electric as well. It's like a, it's, it's called Link Volt, and he's one of the first people that, you know, trying to turn big old classic cars electric. And he disappeared... But then soon as he kind of disappeared, a load of other, like, pickup trucks with blackout windows started appearing, and I think it was like, you know... Time to go. Time to go off the property. There you go. He's never met a bad brummy, but Neil Young has. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, what entertainment, what great fun, what a great guy. Carl Phillips. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund.